When Keith asked, to, he asked me to do this and said, oh, you know, um, would you like to go on the preaching road to Emma? And then when he sent me the email and showed me what it was I would be talking about, it's like, Emma, good and evil. <laughs> so I thought, that's a, that's a big topic, Keith. Thanks for that. Okay. So, <laughs> actually, it's been a really interesting topic to um, research um, and, and think about. And actually... It's interesting that the direction that God has taken it in. So I'm going to read the, the passage. I've got a smaller passage than other people have had. I've only got three verses, um, but there's a lot in them. Um, although what I've got to say is actually relatively short. So it's really good. I've been, I was, this morning I was feeling quite anxious because when I, I finished writing this, I thought, oh, Lord, that's a bit short. But I felt that God was saying, no, that's it. And actually, with everything else that's been brought this morning, it's all all coming together. So thank you, Lord. Right, okay. So this is Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that's the, that's the passage I've got to speak on. And we've been seeing, as we've been going through this sermon series on Genesis, we've, we've been through Genesis 1, where we've seen the big picture of creation and what God did in creating the world. And then we have this, sort of as the sort of narrative of the story goes on, we have a sort of pit stop in, in Genesis 2, where, we, where Moses goes into, Moses who wrote Genesis, he goes into a bit of a, a more detail of what, he's going, what, what God did. In, in creation. And as I've been looking at it, I can see three themes in Genesis 2 that I want to sort of stitch together in what I'm going to say about this little passage. That first, God created us to relate to him, to engage in productive work, and to be morally responsible to him. So um, Rob shared last week, I think, although I'm getting mixed up in my weeks of, of who did what, it was last week, um, about the beautiful garden that God created for Adam, i.e. man, to live in. And verse 15 tells us that God put Adam in the garden to tend it before the fall happened, which we're going we're to see about in, in later weeks. Um, and as we shall see later in this chapter, he then gives Adam the task of naming the animals. So I think what God's trying to say in that is that both physical and mental effort is legitimate. So you know, God gives us work to do. So work is not a curse. Work appears in the world before sin does. Okay, there's a Swedish proverb that says, God gives every bird his worm, but he doesn't throw it into the nest. So, <laughs> so even in the paradise, Adam had to work for the food that he, that he needed. So as I've said, God, um, work is not a curse or a sin. And now, now we do work under the, the curse of sin. But there's value in, in providing for our own basic needs. And whether you work with your hands or your mind, that has equal value. And it's important to realize who we are working for. Work becomes a lot easier and makes a lot more sense. You know, I've had difficulties at work in kind of recently and you know you know people have annoyed me and things have things have gone a bit kind of wrong things have been difficult but if actually if you center yourself in thinking that whatever you're doing you're doing it for god it makes it all make sense it's much easier um and you know whatever you do so paul wrote whatever you do do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that, that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And that is Colossians 3, 23 to 24. So 
that's, you know, that's what we're doing. So God created us to engage in productive work, and there should be satisfaction in doing our work for God. And the theologian Matthew Henry expresses what he thinks about Adam's work in the garden. Well, while his hands were about his trees, his heart might be with his God. And he further says, as we are not allowed to be idle in this world and do nothing, so we are not allowed to be willful and do as we please. That moves me on into the next verse, which is the third theme, which is our moral responsibility to God. So... Um, that verse mentions the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I thought it'd be good, and, you know, as, as I've said before and I said when I, when I preached last time, I like to have context to what I'm saying. So I thought it might be good to just, just think about what the, no, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was, because it's quite a, an odd concept. Um, and actually, we don't know very much about it, but I've found out what I can. So what is meant by the phrase good and evil? So... Good and evil in, in Hebrew, which is what Gen the language Genesis would have been written in, or was written in, is um, pronounced approximately tov, wa, ra. That is what is being translated, good and evil. And um, it may be an example of something called a merism, which is a literary device that pairs opposites together in order to create a general meaning. So good and evil actually means everything. Um, there's an Egyptian expression, which is a, 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 another ancient language, that translates as evil good, which is used in Egyptian writings to mean everything. And also in Homer's Odyssey, he has a character, um, Homer was a, an ancient Greek writer, and he has a, a character called Te Telemachus, who, say, who he has that character say, I know all things, the good and the evil. So that's, it, it seems that that is probably what that, that can be translated, saying you, it's the tree of, of the knowledge of everything. So later in Genesis 3, as we'll see in, in subsequent sermons, when the serpent, who is a representation of Satan or devil, tempts Eve, in verse 4 it says, you will not surely die. So, so the context of that is that the, the snake is... is trying to tempt Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of, not, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though God has said not to. And she, because Satan says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So was the snake correct? So generally, you know, we, we, um, we know from, from um, the Bible, so we know from the Bible in John 8, uh, 44, that Satan is the father of lies. So what he says is, it's wrong. So that isn't true. But, but often I find that when, you know, the devil is having a go at me, that he'll take something that's true and twist it. So actually there is some, there is a shadow of truth in what is being said there. And this is a really kind of, so often the devil tells half-truths and stuff that kind of sounds like it might be right, which is deceptive because we're more likely to believe it and go with it. Um, and this is quite a difficult, this whole issue is quite difficult. So I've sort of found some things to unpick it. There's an author called Ray Steadman who wrote a book called Understanding Man, which is about understanding what it means to be mankind in the light of our relationship with God. And he points out that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they would know good and evil as God does. Now stay with me because that sounds a bit odd, okay? So we've got to understand how God knows good and evil 
as opposed to how we know good and evil. So when God knows good and evil, he doesn't know it by experience like we do. When we're walking around in the world, we can only experience one dimension at one time, as in, well, I suppose we're three-dimensional, but we're in one place at one time and one location. We can only see it from our point of view. But God is outside of that. So he has his incommunicable attributes. He's got lots of things. He can be everywhere all at the same time. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. So he understands good and evil with reference to himself. So when he's looking at things, if you sort of imagine a sort of metaphorical way, if he's looking at things, he knows what's good because that's what's like him. That's what good means, like God. And he knows what's evil because that's not like God. It's the opposite of God. So that's how he's able to do that. Now, what happens when, when you know, what happened when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit is that they got put, they put themselves in God's place. And that's where it goes wrong. So, okay, back in my notes. I'm going off on one. Hang on a minute. Right. So God knows good and evil, not by experience, because he can't experience evil, but by relating it to himself. So that which is consistent with God's nature is good, and that which is contrary is evil. And only God can do that. And Stedman says in his book, the creatures of God's universe are made to discover the difference between good and evil by relating all to the being of God, not to themselves. When man ate of the fruit, he began to do what God does, to relate everything to himself. When man begins to think of himself at the centre of the universe, he, he becomes like God. But that's a lie. Man is not the centre of the universe, and he cannot be. And um, my good friend Nathan Paler, who has been here and has pre preached here, has a great phrase that he says all the time, which is, God is God, and we are not. And this, in this verse, I think we see sort of the God setting out the foundations of the we are not bit. So he is setting out how our relationship should be. So the, so the idea of God giving the command of saying, you can have everything, absolutely everything in this garden, but you can't have that, which might sound like a bit of a meatloaf song. I've just, I've just said that. You can do anything for love, but you can't do that. Just that bit, okay, is not what you're not allowed. And that's dumb, not because God is being mean or nasty and that, because actually what he's, what he's holding back is actually much smaller than what he's giving. But it's to do with getting our relationship right with him. He's God. He knows what's going on. We need to stay in submission to him. And he's setting that out right at the beginning of the story. Okay. And I can, I'm just going to give a few sort of Bible verses just to quote what I'm, to back up what I'm saying. Because one of the ways to reinforce what you're reading in a part of the Bible is to go and look in other bits of the Bible and check that it all lines up. Because sometimes you can misinterpret something. One of the ways to guard against that is to go and look and see what the full picture of the Bible says. So, there's a, so if you go to Isaiah 55, it says, 55, 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then in Isaiah 40, 13, it actually, says it actually says 130 in my notes, so I don't think there's that many verses, but I think it's 13. Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? And then a few, again, sort of 
marrying it up with the, the New Testament. In Romans 11, 34, it says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 1 Corinthians 2, 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And then back to Isaiah, Isaiah 41, 28, when I look, there is no one, there is no counselor among them, this is God's voice, who if I ask can give an answer. So, you know, that's the place that God has. So God has built certain principles into the universe, and we violate them at our peril. When you tell your child not to touch a stove or not to do something, you're not threatening him, but you're lovingly warning. So, you know, we instruct our kids, we tell them what to do, we give them rules and boundaries, and we do that to protect and love them, because they, in their, in their immature state, can't do that for themselves. And, you know, God, as I've said, who's infinite and knows everything, that's the place he should have. So when God is telling us not to do something and he's giving us boundaries, we should trust him. We might not understand why he's doing it. He's doing it out of kindness. So out of kindness, God told Adam for his own good that he must make the proper choice when it came to the tree, knowledge and good and evil. It was a reasonable test that God gave permission to eat of every tree except this one. By banning this one, God made Adam and Eve morally accountable to him. <clears throat> Moral responsibility undergirds all of life and always has consequences. Okay? He's a loving father. Everything he does or does not do, he's doing for our good. Even though it may not make sense, or it might even seem cruel at the time. And I've got a quote from Tim Keller who says, God either answers our prayers by giving us what we ask for, or by giving us what we would have asked for if we could see things from his perspective. So if there's something at the moment that you're asking God for that seems good, seems reasonable, seems a, seems a good thing to want and to have, but you're, you're not getting, you either feel like you're not getting answer or you're getting a no, then just remember who God is. God is seeing things from his perspective. So if you could see the world from his perspective... You know, you, you you wouldn't be asking for that. And my you know my my friend Guy Lister, um, you know, once preached, and in that he said, and this was you know, God sort of dropped this back into my mind as I was writing. If God told us all of the story of our lives and what would happen to us and why it was happening, we couldn't handle it, and our heads would explode. God reveals things to us a bit at a time, what He knows we can handle and what is best for us. And that sort of echoes Romans 8.28, which we've just been singing about. Um, for, we know that, for we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are according, called according to his purpose. So our job in this is to trust him. And things get easier to trust. It's easier to trust somebody the better you know them. So we need to, we need to spend more time in prayer, more time in the word, and we'll understand him in his ways and how he works better. John Calvin, who's another famous Reformed theologian, understands two, um, Genesis 2.16 in this way. He argues that the tree was prohibited so that man might not trust his own understanding and cast off the yoke of God and make himself the judge of good and evil. He states, therefore, abstinence from the fruit of, of one tree was a kind of first lesson in obedience and that, that man might know he has a director and a lord of his life on whom... He, he ought to depend. 
and whose commands he ought to acquiesce or give in to. And this truly is the only rule of living well and rationally and that, that men should exercise themselves in obeying God. So by eating this fruit, man substituted his own finite self as the standard of right and wrong, replacing God's perfect being as the standard. When man sinned, and we'll see about that you know, in later sermons as we get into chapter 3, the result was death. And in the Bible, death is not, not being here anymore. It's not the secession of existence. That can't actually happen. Um, it's separation from God. And someone once explained this to me when I was a new Christian. And incidentally, um, Elizabeth sharing about her testimony of, of how she was converted. I was converted on Pentecost Sunday, 2005. So it's actually my 13th birthday today-ish. Um, it was actually the 15th of May that year. But um, yes. So um, somebody around that time was trying to explain to me what, what it means, what death means and what it means. And death is separation from God. And actually... Everybody walking around in this world does not know what it's like to be separated from God. So those of us that have, you know, have um, got a relationship with Christ, we, we have a relationship with God. But everybody in the world is being sustained by his common grace. And actually, we don't know what it's like to be separated. So that's what, a picture of what hell is. It's separation from God. So um, when Adam sinned, he was immediately separated from God, as we'll see later. And the process of physical death was set in motion. If Adam had eaten of the tree of life, rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he apparently would have lived in his body forever, even after the fall. But God removed that choice by taking man from the garden and sealing its entrance. And since Adam's and Eve's fateful choice, death, both spiritual and physical, has dominated human history. And since the fall, all men are bound by sin, unable to please God and unable to come to God apart from his sovereign grace in sending Jesus um, to, to die for us so that we might have eternal life and relationship to God. So we're slaves to sin and we need Jesus to set us free. Um, and, so, and some more scriptures sort of to back that up. So Romans 8, 7 to 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in the flesh kind of means in, in touch with their sinful nature. And then Romans 9, 14 to 18, so slightly longer. Um, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I, I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that's that whole he is God and we are not thing again. So then it depends on not on human will or exertion, as Elizabeth was explaining, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that, that I might show my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then when he has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills. Okay. Years ago, there was a German theologian, I read this story and thought it was quite apt, called Friedrich Schle I've got, now got to say a German word, Friedrich Schleimacher, who did much to, shame, uh, to shape modern liberal theology. And once, when he was an old man, he was sitting on a park bench in the city, and a policeman came along and thought he was homeless. So he came over to move him on. And he shook him and said, who are you? And Shemaka looked at him and said, I wish I knew. 
<laughs> if we cut ourselves off from the historical truths revealed in Genesis 2, that you are a being created by God to relate to him and to engage in productive work and to be morally responsible to him, then we don't know who we really are. Jesus Christ came to save us from the curse of sin and death, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Through Christ, you come to know the eternal God, and in knowing God, you come to understand who you are and why you were created and how you should live. Amen.